You're listening to People in Profit, a podcast that focuses on elevating humanity through business, sponsored by Conscious Capitalism Arizona. And now, let's hear from our hosts, Jeremy and Sarah. Well, hello, everybody. Arizona does good business, and we want to talk about it. Welcome to the People in Profit, Elevating Humanity Through Business, brought to you by the Arizona Chapter of Conscious Capitalism. Conscious Capitalism is an international movement promoting business as a force for good. The Conscious Capitalism Movement has 50-plus chapters across the United States, including Arizona, and actually we're, uh, we're taking over the world because we have international chapters as well. Uh, free enterprise capitalism has served to lift more people out of poverty than any other socioeconomic system ever conceived, empowering social cooperation, human progress, and elevating humanity. We are working to change the capitalism narrative by shining a bright light on good business, telling the stories of conscious Arizona companies and encouraging others to follow in their footsteps. Good business is the answer to many of the global issues that humankind is facing. And that is what we will dive into on this show. We like to invite leaders in our community to share their stories and experiences and highlight that business has the potential to be a powerful force for good. So let's get started with uh, those very conversations. Very quickly, myself, I am Jeremy Neese. I am uh, proud to be one of the uh, team members for the local chapter of Conscious Capitalism. And I'm Sarah McCrarran, also a member of the Conscious Capitalism leadership team. And I uh, also am always proud to mention my uh, my other gig, which is working with McCarran Compliance, which where we offer safety training and consulting services, specializing in um, mining, construction, and transportation. And even you know more happy to talk about uh, myself and my company. I'm really excited to introduce Andy Shirk, uh, and Andy is the executive vice president at ESI. He's delighted to lead a company aligned with with the principles of conscious capitalism and is also a supporter of Local First. Prior to joining ESI, Andy led True True Roots Development for seven years, advising business owners throughout the Valley. Kindness, curiosity, and wisdom are his core values. His greatest joy is serving people with with warmth and compassion, which is the bedrock of his career. Whether as a business leader, Playing the upright bass, we'll definitely have to ask a little bit more about that in local in the local music scene. <laughs> and he genuinely loves to create a settings for others to shine. And we'll I'll just tell you a little bit about ESI because I know we're going to talk a ton about that as we get into our conversation. Uh, but ESI is the leading provider of employee staffing solutions for Arizona school districts, as uh, as well as assisting governments and colleges. It was founded in 1999 by three educators, and ESI has a passion for helping people and making a positive impact in education. That's sort of the, the basics for everybody, and now we can just uh, you know dive right into conversation. So, uh, Andy, maybe starting just a little bit more about you. Um, I love that you're you know you're curious, and that always is the setup for great conversation. Uh, but uh, maybe a little bit more about your background, you know, what you loved most about the leadership development and how that's translated into what you're doing with ESI. Oh, thanks, Sarah. Jeremy, you guys, uh, it's great to be here. I'm I'm super excited to spend a little time with you today and just talk about some of the important things that, uh, that, that for me, I know conscious capitalism, profits, people, culture, all of that's super important. When I think back to starting out this wonderful professional journey of mine, Early on, I got to work in higher education and helping uh, student athletes develop skills to be better uh, people. And that was through a program the NCAA founded called Life Skills. And through that, it was kind of interesting. They knew that, hey, you know, we, we do a pretty good job helping these folks get ready for, for classes and they do pretty good on the field. But what about life? You know, what about trying to find jobs? And so I did that for a good long time before joining the corporate world and, and the exciting 
always thrilling world of cell phone towers. Ooh, <laughs> yes. Right? That'll stop a cocktail party in its hey, tracks. I've seen both cactus towers <laughs> and pine tree towers, so that is certainly a diverse, exciting area. Yes, yeah. But uh, super, super, super good uh, time for me because in 1999, when I started in that world, uh, little did I know that that uh, BlackBerry phone would someday become something that everybody had. Um, so to be in the cellular, you know, communication infrastructure uh, in the early 2000s was was a great place because basically even my uh, boss at the time when he interviewed me said, hey, bud, you got kind of a short haircut. You Were you in the military or something? And I said, yeah, actually it was. He goes, great, you're hired. And I was like, but I don't know a tower from a telephone pole. Like, what? what is this? And uh, he said, no, it's, it's all good. Little did I know that they had just bought uh, Motorola's towers the prior week. So basically I had a pulse and they're like, dude's good to go, put them in. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, but, but thankfully through that, it, the, the best part was having the opportunity to be in a growing business where I got to do everything from real estate to construction, to sales. I even, God forbid, they put me in charge of finance for a couple of years, which is terrifying. Right. But it was this great time to learn a lot about business and learn a lot about people and, and through that process, I, I had a ball, you know, learning some things. And so that's how I founded True Roots Development, because I got to a place like a, a lot of independent business owners out there where you say, hey, man, I love the corporate life, but I want to get out there and do something special for the uh, for the business community here in Phoenix. And so uh, for seven years, yeah, I advised small business owners and medium business owners all across the valley and some some cases around the U.S. And I uh, tried to pass along some of those Jedi mind tricks that I learned from my corporate life. And it was fantastic right up until I met this really, really amazing guy by the name of Phil Tavasi, who's the owner of ESI. And he hired me to consult. And but before the time I was done with that iced tea that I was having with him, I knew I was going to be joining these folks full time. And my master's is in education. My heart has always been in education. So to be, uh, to have a chance to do both, uh, you know, have an impact from a business perspective and for education in Arizona. And then throw on top of that, these folks had the had the DNA of conscious capitalism at their core. So it was like triple, triple threat for me. So super excited. But that's how I find myself here today. That's well, great. Well, I definitely at some point want to hear, get a, before we're, even if it's after we, you know, we're off the air, I need a couple Jedi mind tricks because I have, <laughs> you know, teenage boys all around me. And so, yeah, you definitely got to drop some of those. Yeah, yeah. And do you do you still have a, an original BlackBerry in your museum or anything to help commemorate those days? Dude, I hate to admit this, but honestly, if if there was a BlackBerry right now, I'd probably still use it. I got some big mitts and, and the little keyboard. You know, I I definitely when when younger folks see me working on that, uh, they get a laugh because I'm I, I'm like ASCII speed. I'm like hitting the one to find A, B, and C. So it's uh it's oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I can relate to that. I'm about fifty percent accuracy on thumb typing. Not very strong. Yeah. That's good stuff. And what a great foundation to, uh, you know, to launch into all of these enterprises that you've been blessed to see. Uh, you know, your bio sure reads servant leadership. And it sounds like uh, uh, your comments about the team at ESI that founded that reflects that. Can you share a little bit about what uh, the organization does to, uh, you know, service in that way to show up every day as, as servant leaders, as, a, you know, as the executive group? Yeah, well, at, at its core, ESI, as, as Sarah so well mentioned, their their job is to help staff public schools. And um, they are an Arizona company founded in Arizona, still in Arizona, serve uh, Arizona school districts. And if you're at all associated with education, you know that Arizona has a tremendous shortage of teachers and, and other people in the education field. Um, a lot of reasons for that, but basically... Uh, even ESI at its at its sole level is is a servant company because we're trying to find ways to ensure that no classroom goes unfilled out there, which is which is a tremendous tremendous um, objective to have. But basically, uh, ESI does that in two ways. One is is we help staff substitute teachers, um, a group of folks that just don't get enough love in this world. And the second way is we help retirees transition um, that are getting close to that sort of uh, retirement level where they're ready to ready to go, but they're not quite ready to leave the classroom. And so we have a program where they can continue to teach and still receive 
their uh, their retirement, which gives them a little bit of a financial boost right there at the end of their career when, uh, as we know, teachers could use all the financial boosts they can get. So uh, the way to help them that way, as well as help staff substitutes, that's really where it's at. And then that, that mission kind of transcends itself into, I guess you'd say, the leadership suite here in the sense that we're, uh, we're both at service to those public school districts as well as the taxpayers that fund them, but as well the people that work here is that, you know, in order to have alignment in all those areas, it's, it's definitely uh, trying to find ways to be at service in many different ways. Uh, that's great. And I would imagine that if we were having this conversation six or eight months ago, perhaps the uh, issues that were on your whiteboard and the challenges you were navigating would be a little bit different. Uh, it must be a, a busy time in your offices. Is this, that might be an understatement. Yeah, we had just wrapped up acquiring our uh, the, the next biggest competitor, a wonderful company called Smart Schools. They're, they've been operating here for a number of years in the Valley, and the, the owners there decided they were ready to about retire. And so we closed that, uh, I think it was right there in the end of February. And so, yeah, imagine that. Uh, we had an entirely uh, new group of clients that we had not worked with in the past that we were able to serve. But then, yeah, oh, there's all of these problems with uh, with COVID and the pandemic and 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 the uh, tremendous impact that's had on our schools. It's It, it has been a handful, but uh, hopefully we're helping out. I'm sure that's the case. Did I see that you have 7,000 substitutes in your Rolodex? We do from time to time. It's uh, it, it, it's forever, as you can imagine, with snowbirds and, and so forth. Uh, that number comes and goes. But uh, yeah, at any given time, we usually have uh, 7,000 folks that we work with in that way. And um, across, gosh, 60 school districts across the state, as well as uh, in our retirement programs, we work with 120 school districts there too. And uh, that's, that's most of the school districts in Arizona. It's quite a few folks. How does the mix work? Like what are most of them in your retire program or is it a big mix or, you know, I'm just curious what that looks like. Yeah. Great question, Sarah. So yeah, we've got about 1200 any given year, we've got about 1200 return to work retirees that work with us and they're generally in full-time regular teaching or administrative or classified positions within the school districts. And then separate from that are those 7,000 substitutes. So those, those folks are the ones that you traditionally think that are serving those, uh, you know, where people are absent or maybe they've left the classroom for a few months to uh, start a family or whatever the reasons for their absences, but the substitutes are, are separate from the retirees. You, you notice where your, you know, the school systems or the clients where they, I mean, do they ever offer a preference or they're always like, hey, you really got this, you know, figured out with this, you know, retiree return to work thing. You know, those are the people that we want or they're, they're just open to everybody. Yeah, it's another good question. And we've, we built the company actually. And I say we, the, the owners that originally founded it, it was founded as a, as the retirement return to work program. But then what happened was the different changes with the ACA and all all those folks out there that are listening that are way into insurance and benefits, they'll probably understand, right? That proposition 206 here in Arizona that required paid sick time and all of that, the school districts are like, wow, that's a lot to figure out. ESI, you're pretty good at that. Like, would you guys do our substitutes? And so that's how the substitute program started was the districts came and said, hey, we could use a little help on this stuff. It's getting a little bit crazy to keep up with, especially for, you know, substitutes that are part-time workers. So you put that together and that's where it's at. But they are kind of separate in the sense that a lot of school districts will say, hey, you know, I've got some experienced teachers. I want them to stay here, experienced administrators. That's how they get involved with our uh, program. It's called Retire Rehire. So that's the return to work program. And then again, separate from that is the substitute program. And those are the districts that say, hey, we've got substitutes here, but we'd really like some help managing them. And then, oh, by the way, here recently, as as it's been happening, you know, we've got to find some more of those folks. So we're having to get really good at figuring out how to recruit and invite people to join that profession. So that's a question that comes top of mind for me, you know, it's piling right after that is we're operating at a time now, obviously one of the core tenets of conscious capitalism is stakeholder orientation and trying to keep in balance, a working balance of the needs of everyone at the table and not outweigh one over the other. And it just seems like there's a whole bevy of uh, scenarios and issues and challenges that you guys must be navigating right now. And I'm, I'm sure you're actively recruiting more folks to be, Part of the solution as the schools are reopening and are likely juggling their casts of, of players. I know 
firsthand, our school was kind of on a floating schedule on when there was going to be an option for the kids to return back. And last week they made the announcement that this would be the week that the doors would be open. And I think they lost five to 10% of the teachers upon that announcement. The core of the question is, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in, in trying to at the same time recruit people and keep people safe and uh, and contribute to this challenge that we have as a community of what do we do with our kids and the families that are supporting them and the teachers and the whole ecosystem? Yeah, you, you've you've definitely hit on it there. I mean, the the challenge is is we can't have we can't have it both ways in the sense that uh, right now there's there's sort of this do we open do we not reopen uh, debate that goes on right. And the problem is, is there's costs on both sides. I mean, if if you reopen, obviously there's a risk to the students and the staff. If you don't reopen, there's costs, as every parent out there knows, to their children and their educational trajectory. And that's for those folks that are on track. You know, there's there's, you know, obviously people in our community, in the Arizona community, that uh, that don't have a lot of the the basic needs and the schools fill that gap, you know, whether it's food or whether it's social connection or whether it's even safety, a safe place to go during the day. Um, all of that's not happening. So uh, when I hear the debate rage on, I say, yes, you're both right. There's, there's there tremendous go. cost and pain on both sides. And uh, the answer to that is it's you, well, I'll just put it this way. I would, I could not possibly be a superintendent right now and try to, you know, no, no, it's, there it's, is no winning answer no. there. You can't, but for us, the best that we can do is one is, 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 you know, you ever notice in a crisis that, uh, people really seek, uh, information and some amount of certainty as much as they can. Right. And so the way I see ESI filling that role is to try to be a source of strong, solid, consistent information and connection. And oftentimes when people are faced with this much uncertainty, that's where fear comes in. Right. And so people become afraid and they become very nervous. And then even the slightest things on either side of the issue become extraordinarily inflammatory. And for us, we say, hey, we don't know the answer, but we know each school district has to find their way. But for those hundreds or dozens or even in some of these smaller districts where there's only one or two folks that work with us, the best thing we can do is stay connected and help serve as an additional advocate for them to talk to the district and say, hey, what are you guys doing next? Uh, what are you doing for safety? What are you doing for connection? Have you have you communicated with your folks lately? Because in the midst of all of the planning and the chaos and trying to serve parents and students, I mean, it's no easy place. So one place for us to be of service is just to ask the right questions and then provide that information, you know, consistently out to our folks. I think one of the one of the best examples of, of a conscious capitalism trade-off, you know, there's always these trade-offs that we have to deal with in conscious capitalism, is early in the spring, to set this up for you a little bit, as you can imagine, right, schools just had to close. I mean, it was scary, right? Everybody just closed the schools, sent everybody home. Well, all of our substitute teachers in those cases, now they don't have any more assignments. So full-time teachers, in large part, they were found ways to keep them working or at least keep them getting paid. But all the substitutes were suddenly out of work. And then simultaneously with that, as we know, everything that happened in Washington, right, tremendous amount of chaotic response as far as what happened with uh, you know, unemployment assistance, and all of the, the CARES Act. And it was like, wow, it's so hard to keep up, right? So Here's one of the trade-offs. My employee services team, those are the folks that talk to those 7,000 people all the time. They're a wonderful group of people, so compassionate, right? They're getting calls like crazy with people so upset. Well, I recognize that one of the ways we could help was to try to communicate what was happening in the unemployment assistance area. So imagine... Imagine Andy, here I am, I got my little conscious capitalism thing behind my head. And I'm like, yeah, trade-offs, let's do this. You know, we can find win-win, right? I'm like, hey, guys, we need to help our substitutes understand the unemployment process. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah the we guy. don't have anything else going on. Right? <laughs> um, so it was an easy sell because these people that I have here, I mean, our employees just love the people that they serve. And they're like, heck yeah. In fact, at a point, we almost had to pull them back because I was afraid perhaps Governor Ducey would try to recruit them to become part of the unemployment system because they learned so much about it in order to communicate to the substitutes, say, I know I can't put you to work right now, but maybe we can help you find the unemployment assistance that is out there for gig workers. And that was a really crazy time. So that was a moment when, again, normal company would be like, hey, let's Let's try to like minimize the amount of phone calls we're getting. And I think in a conscious capitalism example, 
it wasn't that it was like, how do we get more phone calls and how do we help more people? And certainly not the best thing for, for sanity or profits in terms of the way we had to work folks, but it was the right thing to do, you know? And that's, I, I think when you look at the crisis, there's all these opportunities and that was just one example for you. Oh, that, and that's a solid one. That's really impressive. Uh, Cause you know, that's the theme right now, right? As we have to be adaptive and, and we have to, this scenario is just playing out so dynamically. And I, I love how you saw the opportunity to be of service. And uh, that, that's a great example. Yeah, I like it too, because you're, you see, it's like you recognize that your role is to all to both sets of stakeholders, right? And so, yes, you have to serve the schools and you're filling a need with this pool of substitute teachers, but you also recognize that you're serving them as well. And as soon as their needs completely changed, I mean, completely changed, you said, okay, so even though we weren't set up to serve your new set of needs, we're going we're gonna to adjust because we now, you have a new set of needs, so we now have to have a new set of solutions. And then from a pure business perspective and looking at the long-term sustainability of ESI, keeping those people as whole and as healthy and, um, and as, you know, their well-being um, and their sense of safety as high as possible is going to be the quickest way for you to also rebound when your other stakeholders, the school systems, are ready to bring them back. And so, yes, it's great to look at it and you should look at it. I think the very first thing should always be how are we serving our people, all of our people. But again, from just a business perspective and, and the, the health and what's right, looking for the future of ESI, it was to make sure those people were ready when you need them. So great. And that actually leads me into my question. Where are these people now? So now we're back in the fall. What, what is this, this, you know, the status of these 7,000 people and are they still waiting in limbo or some portion of them able to go back or what does it look like for them today? Yeah. Oh boy. It is, uh, it is a wild time for them and it continues largely to be, as you said, limbo. Um, unfortunately, right. It, it really depends upon the school district. In some cases, the districts that are open have a small need for what we would call the daily substitutes. And those are the folks that would, you know, come in on a, on a moment's notice. Hey, I got a doctor's appointment. I need a sub and the sub comes in and takes over the class, right? Well, without in-person education and just the general sort of crisis nature that we're in right now across the school districts, there's not a large need for them. And that, that breaks our hearts in the sense that for those substitutes that want to get back in the classroom, they're unable to. But at the same time, right, we've got a group of substitutes that are uh, largely the retired teachers, right? The average age of my substitute population is 56, and I have the most number of substitutes that are over the age of 60. And they're wonderful substitutes. In fact, many teachers that join us as substitutes that were teachers for 30, 40 years, they love it because they get to just do the teaching part and they don't have to worry so much about the lesson plans and all that other stuff. So the problem with them is, is they're saying, hey, you know, I, I, I do this because I love this, but, you know, it's too scary for me. You know, it's too dangerous. I don't want to go back. Um, and then everywhere in between, Right. Um, so it's just, it is, uh, limbo would probably be the right, right word that if you were to call all of those people, if we got a whole bunch of phones and we call 7,000 folks, you probably get, you know, 6,000 different answers. And it would probably be some, some semblance of, gosh, I need to feed my family. This was my job. This is how I, this is how I made a living. Um, I got to get back. I can't wait to get back, uh, right up until like, Hey, until there's a vaccine, I don't want to go back. And um, that all of that is certainly challenging. Each person kind of is trying to figure that out for themselves. But I do look forward to the day when we can, and I say this very, very uh, intentionally, safely reopen in-person education because nothing beats in-person education, but it's just got to be in a way that is as safe uh, as possible and minimizes those risks. So until that happens, I know I've got a lot of folks suffering right now. Are you able to... Um you know, serve the schools in a remote capacity? Like, are any of your people able to kind of step into that, you know, virtual role? Because I imagine people still get sick and have doctor's appointments even when, you know, they're teaching via Zoom. Yeah. Yeah, and it's true. So there are a, there are a group of folks that uh, within those substitute populations. So, uh, for instance, if we took a given school district and said, hey, um, they have, uh, let's say, a bigger school district. They have three or 400 substitutes that usually 
um, fill, you know, these absences. Um, these, a lot of the school districts have reached out to them and, and sort of recruited a small percentage of that group and said, hey, we'll get you up to speed on the online um, software and uh, virtual teaching techniques and done some advanced training. And then those folks are serving. Unfortunately, it's a smaller group percentage of, of, the, of the larger group. But yeah, that does go on. And then I, the, you know, it's probably a little bit more on the normal operation size, but it, but it, it was, it sounded like such like an incredible program. It was one of the things that I really, really wanted to ask you about, and that is the um, international uh, opportunity, right? Like you have a program where you bring in teachers um, from all over the world and find positions for them. In an educational setting, and uh, I mean that to me, that's just great. I mean, there's all not only uh, you know it's a great experience for the teachers, but I mean that just brings so much into these classrooms. I mean, to to you talk about you know how do we you know bridge gaps and understand each other, and you know and um, you know tolerate and, you know love other cultures. Well, you you bring them face to face, right? So it's uh, just seems like such a great service. So I would just love to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, this will probably do the interview. This will be the next half hour right here. So excited. about. Told you to wait on that one, Sarah. You got it. So the the story goes on this. If, if, as you know, as teachers, teacher shortage here in Arizona, there's a lot of positions that need to be filled. And there's a few companies that do a fine job recruiting teachers from all over the world to join us on a J one visa program to work, in those school districts as teaching positions. Interestingly, we noticed a lot of those folks are from various parts of Asia or, or uh, India and, and uh, the Pacific, and they do a wonderful job. And so we were, uh, and I say we, some of the members of the leadership team were down in a meeting down close to the border and could see like this idea, you're looking at these students uh, that are Latinx, that, that are 40%, right, of our students, maybe more in Arizona are of, uh, of Latin descent. And so there's this idea that, that, that we had early on that was like, hey, what if we had this crazy idea and recruited J-1 visa teachers from Latin America because so many of our students here have that cultural connection? And what better way to teach a bilingual class or to teach even, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, English learning classes than from somebody who has a similar background. So uh, just imagine us a few years ago saying, hey, um, Department of State, can we get some J-1 visas to bring, bring people up from uh, from Latin America, right? Probably not the greatest timing, but it was the greatest idea. And we're working through that right now with the Department of State and hoping to get approval because our plan is, and we've already established partnerships with Mexico and Guatemala and uh, other Latin American countries so that we can create a connection and, and bring highly qualified, very advanced teachers and have them come here to help teach some of those classes and then also set up opportunities for uh, our Arizona teachers to enjoy time there. There's so many cultural connections between our various uh, communities that um, there's nothing but benefit to be gained from that. Um, Extremely difficult from a logistical perspective, and we're still uh, very patiently waiting for an approval from the Department of State, but we have Great support from the leaders here in Arizona, as well as from all around the U.S. that have said, hey, this is a really good idea because there's so many different ways that this could make things better for the student. And oh, by the way, the teachers are going to gain a lot, too, from from getting to teach here and learn more here. And there's certainly plenty of opportunity for those those classroom positions and that most school districts can't even fill all their existing roles. So it's uh, it's probably the classic win, win, win when we talk about conscious capitalism. I mean, even from a global perspective, talk about, um, you know, everybody having something to be gained from this. Um, so we're, we're, we're super excited about it and going to stay uh, very aggressive about trying to get this program going. Well, that's great. And you mentioned it's yeah. you know, maybe not the best timing from a logistical perspective, but I would say from a cultural perspective, it is the best timing. And so, uh, um, so I, you know, I'm glad to hear that, you know, you're, you know, you guys are so invested in this, that you're going to continue the fight and see it, you know, all the way there and, and be patient and be forceful and do at the, all at the right times to, to make it, make it happen. Because, you know, I, I, you know, I think we see your vision and, um, and we would really like to, you know, see it in real life <laughs> so yeah we can't wait you know in fact 
hopefully at some point in the not too you know distant future we can bring you back on and we can talk you know about how talk more about how it's actually going absolutely i'd love to we're we're so excited about it so I'm real curious, um, as you continue to uh, outline sort of the anatomy of your organization, and you had mentioned earlier um, when the COVID first hit that your employee services group engaged and, uh, and helped cater information to your, to your group, your substitutes specifically that were out. And it just made me think of all the various elements that you have that are, that are sort of, I don't want to call them silos, but different uh, different groups that you have that you are serving as an organization. So you've got these substitutes that are sort of very dynamic. They can be in any school on any given day. You've got your retirees, or if I understood, some of those are sort of full-time, just outplacement into um, organizations where they're sort of, they're part of your culture, but they're also part of that local school. You're talking about bringing in these, these foreign workers. You, you've got really quite a bit of different folks that you're catering to. Like, how do you go about approaching those cultural things? Like, what is it? How did that employee services group come to be, and what do they do every day? And, and how do you keep track on all of that? How do you make these people feel like they're ESI, but also servants to ultimately the end users, the students, and the schools and the families? How do you balance all that? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. It's uh, it's kind of funny. It's it, we 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 throw around often the the term ESI family, right? I know a lot of businesses do that. They'll say, "Hey, we're kind of a family business." ESI is a family business. They were founded as a family business and continue that way. So we, we've never lost that. And so, you know, I think much like a family, right? One of the best things you can do is just think about each other, be able to talk to each other. So that, that for instance, this employee services uh, team, their job is to really be there. It's kind of a running joke that I have when I'm talking to folks that are thinking about joining ESI. Is I'm like, hey, we're we're not like some big company. When you call us, you, you get a voice there. Like you don't have to go through a phone tree with you know 30 prompts and you know there's an electronic voice there and all that. And if you send us an email, you get a response. You know, and and they're like, uh, so the ESR team, those guys are really focused on being that voice at the other end of the phone. And even even so much so that we've uh, much much to their chagrin was is big thing. But we had picture day, right? So we had to have, take pictures of everybody, and we try to put that in all of our presentations and everything to say, "Hey, man, we we are people. We are your neighbors. We're part of the community." And that's where we kind of get the full circle. Is that oftentimes the folks that are calling us from all over Arizona, they are likely the neighbors to the same people that we're living next to, right? They're the ones that are teaching the children that are that are in our neighborhoods. And so, um, you know, it really is an ecosystem in the sense that all of us uh, will benefit together by good, solid education and we'll all suffer when there's misses. And so I know that in the hearts and minds of this team, when they take these calls, which sometimes are pretty challenging, you know, people calling upset or whatnot, they really do look at it. They're, they're helping a member of their family. And um, we, we try to keep that something that, that we joke. Now, I don't know if that makes me the weird uncle. I like to say I'm the guy that should have, I don't know, but um, they do a fine job with that. They're, they're super cool. Wasn't the That's weird good. uncle everybody's favorite anyway, right? Yeah. Well, entertaining well, at the least. Yeah. Well, isn't that always the favorite? You want to be entertained. <laughs> so, so I heard, uh, you know, this is, you know, about people and, and, or, you know, people profit and per- purpose and profit. So I'm pretty sure I heard, you know, the purpose uh, that you're using to, you know, to, to, you know, to motivate and, and, you know, help keep people, sustain your people. And, and, you know, when they have the hard days, how do they get through? And uh, it seems pretty clear that, you know, it's, it's the purpose of, you know, having a healthy education in our community. Right. And so, you know, like just your whole team getting behind the idea of we're such a critical part of the education, you know, infrastructure that if we want to, you know, ensure that Arizona or, you know, and beyond that all of our children and our community's children, that they're getting the quality education they need, we're a critical piece. So we have to be here every day. We have to do, have the hard conversations, you know, with our, uh, you know, with our, our partners and, you know, are, you know, dissatisfied for whatever reason or another. Maybe we have to put in, you know, the long hours here and there, and especially getting through what's everything that's going on right now, because again, it's that underlying purpose of, because we're part of this ecosystem, we're that critical piece to ensuring that we have high quality education. And certainly we could just 
go on and on about the ripple effects of, of quality education, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, you, you hit on it best there. You know, you use that word. I love it. It's purpose, right? And we've all, I don't know, most people have done jobs that maybe lacked a little bit of purpose. And then when you get to do a job, when you're blessed, like we are with a job that has built in purpose, it is almost unfair when I have to go ask people to join ESI because I can say, hey, we take good care of you. But more than anything, every day you wake up, you have purpose. And that what you do here has a true impact on the community. So I know it's, it's for us, it's almost an unfair advantage in the sense that um, all of our activities and everything that we try to do has that underlying purpose that quality education improves a community. That's end stop. There's no debating that. And so for us, there's no part of our business that is like uh, the negative drawdown, you know, because we look at ourselves as being very good at what we do. And so part of that means that we're super efficient at what we do. So that means that the taxpayers' money that they're investing in the school system, we're using that in a, in a way that actually stretches that dollar further. So even though we're getting paid, we're really good. So we're stretching those dollars out. Uh, as opposed to every school district having to figure out the things that we figure out. Now we got 7,000 of these folks, right? So we're good stewards of taxpayer money. We're taking care of students and we're taking care of the employees here um, all under the umbrella of purpose. Ah, you can't beat it. Really, really, really lucky that way. I would imagine today is mixed with both a great deal of opportunity. We've got historic unemployment, which means there could be lots of candidates to pull from. But at the same time, you've got a very gun shy group to a certain degree of, you know, what, what do I want to be part of? How close do I want to get to all these things? How are you? I don't want to trivialize that. I assume there's other challenges you're working through, but walk us through some of the things that are happening in your boardroom discussions right now. What, how are you moving forward through this time? Yeah, it's it's you probably touched on it. One of the things my one of my biggest priorities beyond the the safe return of, of our existing staff is is trying to think about ways to to simultaneously invite other people that might not have considered education to join us with this concept that not only will we invite these new people to join us, but we'd like to continue to elevate the profession. You know, that there's as I mentioned that purpose piece, right? When you're, a, when you're a substitute teacher, there's not many flexible jobs like that where you can take jobs when you want, when you don't want, and have built-in purpose. You know, if you're a gig worker out there and you're thinking about, hey, you know, it's okay driving these, you know, uh, takeout meals and stuff like that, nothing wrong with that. That's good stuff. But imagine making that same kind of money uh, changing some kids' lives, right? So it's a pretty compelling thing. But at the same time, it's scary. I mean... <laughs> I can remember uh, sometimes maybe I wasn't the best uh, with my classmates to the substitute that came in there. I was always trying to be class pet as much as possible, but, you know, people are pretty tough. So a lot of people that haven't been in education, they're terrified of the idea of getting in front of a class and having to lead that class. So um, I've, got a, I've got this sort of problem in the sense that my company and I, we are trying to figure out how do you invite other people to join the, the, the realm of this this wonderful profession where you do get to serve students. And part of that is trying to understand the different kinds of folks that are out there. And for the marketers that are listening in, right, it's marketing in the truest, most compassionate sense, right? You got to understand the demographics and the psychographics of the people that you're trying to talk to. So right now, I recognize that most of my substitutes are generally retired folks. And I know there's some ways I could reach out and invite them to join, but they're probably not quite as interested as maybe some folks that are in other areas that are younger that might say, hey, you know what? I don't have the, uh, the the comorbidities or the extra problems that would cause me to be really concerned. And I feel like I could, re I could get into a classroom sooner than not. And so for us, it's about how do you then appeal to those folks, right? So we're working, flexing our muscles, trying to learn more about online advertising, but also, you know, kind of hitting on that Peace Corps thing that they've had for, for years, right? The toughest job you'll ever love. Like, yeah, it's not the best time to enter the classroom. And it's certainly not an easy job. But the thing is, is there's so many of our younger folks in their 20s and 30s that would say, man, that's what I want. Like, I'm sick of waking up feeling like I don't have a, a meaning in my life. Well, come join this. And, and, and that's, that's what it's about. So uh, with that, we also have to balance it with the requirements of education and, and the requirements of certifications and things like that. But that's the part where ESI can kind of help them understand what the process is and not be quite so scared. And also, hopefully, make it easier for them to consider like, hey, when you do get up in front of that group of kids, 
man, they're just looking for some love and some attention. And so you provide them with that. It's not nearly as scary as you think it is, you know? So we've got a lot of work to do because we got to figure out how to bridge all those gaps. But I would love nothing more than make the best out of this situation is to perhaps elevate the profession simultaneously with inviting people that might not have considered, you know, education as a profession to come join and try it out and see. And, and, uh, you know, the, the folks that will do it, you know, uh, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because it's, it's a passion. And uh, right. it's, it's, I wish it was both, but for the time being, <laughs> I, my hat goes off to them and uh, I would love more folks to join us. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I totally love that, that, you know, correlation to the Peace Corps. And, 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 you know, I hadn't thought about it because, of course, I'm not as close to it as you are. But there is a need and hopefully in the very short term, a need for a certain, you know, group of people to maybe step up, both step up because we need them because it, they're in a lower risk group than other people are. And like we were talking about before, it's really, they're so many social and community benefits to being and developmental benefits to actually being in person. And then now, like you're saying, but if there's a portion of the population where this is a much higher risk, and there is a portion of the population that there's a much higher risk. So now we have this need that needs to be filled by a new group of the population. And now you talk about this peace corpse, you know, type thing. Um, I mean, I'm just, you know, I know, on zoom, you know, no one can see it, but I'm like, you know, getting closer and closer to be like, <laughs> wait. <laughs> so, so anyway, so you, you've totally got me hooked, but now the question and you touched on it, uh, but I, you know, I just want to know more, uh, you know, what services do you provide to, to bridge the, you know, that gap of not just the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the fear of the unknown, I've never thought about this, I couldn't do it, but the actual logistical piece of how do they become qualified? So if they're, you know, delivering food and we've got a better opportunity for them, how do we get them, you know, to the point of being qualified? And then the second part, because you brought this up and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, you know, obviously they have to be qualified, but even more important, how do we teach them to be, you know, empathetic? Because that's you know so so important, and and to bring the human element into the classroom. So, how does ESI do those things? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you a little like current versus future. So, this is an area that, uh, as a company, we're very very excited to continue to develop. It's the next frontier for us. Is the part where we where we talk about how to how to take folks that are kind of like, yeah, I think I want to try this and how do we get them there, right? To where they're successful in the classroom, ready to go. But what we're good at right now, what we're currently very good at is helping explain the requirements. And then as people that do, that do have an interest. So a lot of times what will happen is maybe a mom within a school district will say, Hey, you know, I kind of want to substitute and they'll talk to the school district. The school district will be like, Hey, ESI is here. They actually service us. And so talk to ESI, right? So we'll help them figure out if they've got a bachelor's degree, which which is a requirement, we'll help them as far as understanding how to get the state uh, substitute certification and go through that administrative process, as well as with the Department of Public Safety and the fingerprint card process and the background checks and all of that, because we do want to make sure everybody's qualified and safe. Um, but that's something we're very, very good at is helping them, uh, you know, transition through there. And then from there, we work in close partnership with with school districts. Um, that, that are our clients. And in many cases, they provide quite in-depth orientations and they help mentorship programs and things like that. A lot of this is dependent upon the, the school district itself, but that's an area where I'd love to invest some more time and effort on our part is uh, if we're going to get good about inviting folks, then let's also figure out how to make that on-ramp to the district even smoother. So obviously in the current environment, the best I could do in about three weeks was come up with a video orientation. And uh, it was uh, it was a homegrown process. Uh, we got a lot of help and uh, we had our internal people kind of do the voiceover. And it's a riot. I mean, it really is. It's, it is down home family style um, in the way that we do it. Um, but at least it helps at the very beginning break down some of those major concerns that people have about, wow, you know, what is this thing going to be like? And what are all the buttons that I have to press? And what certifications and on and on. Um, but that's what our team's really good at is being there to, to almost like a lighthouse to help them see the way forward. So, um, but we've got, we've got even more work to do there. That's, that's an area I want to get even better at is figure out how to, how to, how to help folks, you know, be really fired up about it as well as be successful 
once they reach those classrooms, you know, universally. Um, but that's one thing COVID has done for us is we had to learn real fast. How do we uh, relate to people when we can't bring them into a classroom and teach them? <laughs> so true. Another curiosity I had in the same line there. So substitutes obviously could go look at the postings at their local school, or they could look at an ESI avenue, and I'm sure there's other options. But what what are you mentioned there's some inherent efficiencies that you bring to districts? Can you explain a little bit, both from the perspective of I'm a potential substitute, why I would want to go with ESI as opposed to my local community school directly, and then what are some of those economies of scale, I assume, or just uh, systematic uh, tools that you put in place, much like your videos, and making sure people that show up are vetted and capable and uh, you're uh, equipping them to the best of your ability. What, what does that process look like? Yeah, well, you hit on something very important, Jeremy, that, that I point out is that really, and anybody who's listening to this, if they're getting it all fired up, hearing me talk about all this purpose in education, talk to your local school district, not even worry about ESI, because we'd love you to get involved, even if it's not with us. So that said, um, the story as to why folks enjoy working with ESI is because, as I mentioned, we've got all of these people that are experts at, at, at servicing individuals that are in this profession. So when you call us, we understand, you know, we know what it's like and, and we're going to take good care of you. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, we only work with the school districts that pick us and that's the way we, we like it. And they work with those, uh, we work with their sub pools and we call it their sub pools. We don't try to like create a giant sub pool and, and see who, who pays the most and sub people out. It's, we really do it in partnership with the district so that it's, cool. if you're, if you're subbing in Chandler, you're subbing in Chandler, you know, do you have an opportunity to sub in Higley? Sure. You probably could. You could sub in Mesa, um, wherever those things are, but we don't, we don't encourage that. We just take care of the people that work with us from the school district side. So you hit on the efficiency point, right? Every school district um, is really good at, you know, sort of servicing their staff, but substitutes in particular are a unique group because it's a flexible schedule people. If you want to work one day, right. So we, have worked with all, there's a couple different software systems and depending on the district, they work with different software. So we're really good at the software side. We're really good at the payroll side as far as managing benefits and compliance, all of that stuff. We're, we're fantastic. And so it takes all those headaches off of the school. And that's why the school is like, yeah, we like this. And then on top of it, since we get to work with, you know, call it 60 different school districts, I have a really great seat on the bus and all of the folks here, we get to see what are the best practices out there and apply those best practices. And, and we share them with the districts as well. So if we see somebody doing something really cool, we'll share it with our other clients and, and we serve as a conduit of that information as much as we can. Ooh, that's very interesting. What, what kind of mechanisms do you have in place to do that? Do you have like a, how does that work? How do you, how do you actually get information to the districts? District A is doing this. You guys need to hear about it. It's super awesome. How do you make uh, that happen? It's extremely, extremely intricate and complex. And the software that we use, it's actually the phone. <laughs> um, I, I wow. know there's that... like, I'm, I'm going to blow all those people out there like in CRM. They're going to be emailing me like, what are you doing, man? You're killing me. Um, yeah, we, we do use a CRM, but honestly, we, uh, we've employed a group of client managers that, that our, our job is to just talk to the clients and have conversations like on the phone, in person, when it's safe, you know. And uh, that's how it gets shared. People ask us questions and we call them for no reason just to say hi. And we um, take the time to just check in and, and uh, not so much that we're trying to develop business, but just because they're people, it's the right thing to do, right? They're a stakeholder. So absolutely, uh, it's a way to care for them. So yeah, that's our highly sophisticated automated way. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll buy some coffee cups and walk by and hand them to them and say, Hey, we're here for you. What's going on? And then when they say, I got this problem, I can go, hey, guess what? This district down the street from you, they're doing it X, Y, Z way. And uh, there's magic in there. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's another example of conscious capitalism, right? It is not the most efficient way to do it. But it is by far, uh, there are so many added benefits to taking that time and effort. I'm going to say it is the most efficient way. And I'm going to argue that it is the most efficient because... Yes, we could have, we could do all this formal data gathering and data cleansing and, and, you know, different scenario analysis and comparisons and then try to, you know, have the best answer that we've, you know, vetted and proven and whatever. Or 
uh, we could just have trusted relationships, right? And so you, you, you build the relationship, you build the trust, and how much faster are things adopted and information taken and synthesized and, and put into practice when it's all based on trust uh, yeah. versus a model that you have, I now have to convince you that it's proven because my computer said so. So I I like it. I mean, I don't know if you saw me, but I'm like, my smile is getting so big. It's like, uh, you know, going off the But <laughs> it's, you know, I, it's funny because one of my pet peeves is like surveys and stuff like that. I'm like, now granted, if I've got to talk to all 7,000 subsidies, there's a survey, right? But when it comes to clients, it's like, you want to survey them, you pick up the phone. The problem is, is it's emotionally challenging, right? Because you don't know, they might be upset with you that day. So it takes a little bit of courage to pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, what's going on? Way easier to send a MailChimp or send a survey or whatever, uh, because you're not connected to the person. So it, 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 there's this courage, right? It takes a little bit of an emotional lift to just to pick up that phone and call them and say, hey, I'm thinking about you right now. What's going on? But you're right. It's, it's where the magic is. Well, and, and if you're, but if you know that the, if you believe, you know, that the, um, so my role here, my purpose here is to, you know, ensure that I help create the best, the highest quality of education in in Arizona. And I know that we, we create that, that critical piece. And I also believe that the only way for us to be our best is to hear the worst, right? Because the only way we're going to be our best is, is if we identify and fix the worst, right? And so I imagine that's where the courage comes from. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's true. That feedback is, is valuable. And there's two ways to look at it. It's either painful or it's a gift. And really, if you can get past the, the initial like, whoops, uh, it's a gift. It is. I was thinking the same thing. You were so quick to make it seem like it's just so, so simple, right? But as simple isn't easy. And so it is simple. The end result is you need to be in communication with these people in a meaningful way, but it's not easy because you still have to have mechanism. It starts with intent, by the way, and then you still have to be able to have information share amongst your teams. Uh, You have a lot of dynamic information, especially today. What was working last month as people were preparing to open schools and what's working now is we got a week or two of some schools that have real information in their arsenal as far as here's what's occurred and transpired and here's what we've learned already in one and two weeks like those are those are not simple things but at the end of the day you have to decide and say we're going to deliver it and we're going to find the most reliable and easy mechanism to do it and we're going to pick up the phone and share so that's that's my point that's fantastic i'm curious andy a question about you you are you seem very well versed in the language of conscious capitalism i always love to see the the banner floating behind you like that fellow uh, proud tribe members. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey of discovery and, and how you arrived as as a member of our group? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, I'm super, I'm just super humbled to be able to represent you aside today and talk about that. And that uh, that thing is a little yellow from being under the fluorescent light so long. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I came about this uh, years and years ago with, uh, I was doing a little volunteer work with uh, social venture partners and there's this oh, program sure. called Fast Pitch here in the Valley. Awesome mm-hmm. thing they were doing, right? So I, I run into this gentleman by the name of Scott McIntosh, right? And if yes. you meet Scott in 30 seconds, you're like, yeah, whatever you need, Scott, I'm here <laughs> for you. Man. And I've been that hang around guy, like on the periphery, um, just like a huge fan. It was like so many people that are new to this that might be just listen to us, meet us, know us. They're like, I found my tribe, you know, like I've, I believe this my whole life. And now there's a group of people that I can share it with. Right. Same, same, man, same here. And, and so a few, a few conversations with Scott getting to hang around max six and get to know, you know, the family and going to some events early on before we even knew what was happening. And now uh, with the, with the energy that the volunteer group brings to this program, I'm just super stoked. So at the time, you know, I'm doing a lot of consulting. So, of course, initially, I was like, oh, this is a great way for me to meet potential clients or meet people that, that share this love. But I found pretty quick it was, it was way more important to just have an, a, an avenue to be able to talk about the important things. And then, you know, right over here, having my field guide, my conscious capitalism field guide and all of that. Um, yeah, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid. So from <laughs> ambassadorship and all of that and trying to help my clients on that path. And now that I work for a company that uh, is a huge believer in this um, and the ownership here is just just a big fan. We get to now we get to help at a new level and hopefully 
link up with other other businesses here. I know we're a, we're a big economic engine for Arizona, as big as we are, and some of the things we're doing. And so uh, to to have that kind of a platform to bring education, conscious capitalism together. Um, you can probably hear my voice. I'm a little excited about it. <laughs> There's no doubt. It's pumping through your blood. Love it. Um, you mentioned the uh, the regressive leadership jumped on board. I mean, is it overt? You've got the guide on your desk over there? Or do people come in the room and say, what is that? Or, oh, that's what you were talking about in the last meeting when we saw that graphic. I mean, is it integrated that specifically or it's just part of your culture because that's who you are? Yeah, my my leadership here. I've only I've only been here uh, just under two years, and so I believe that you just do it and then you name it, as opposed to naming it and then doing it. And I and I say that in the sense that um, I know every leader out there would agree with me, right? There's this part of part of you that's afraid to share some of these high ideals of conscious capitalism because of the the potential hypocrisy, right? Sure. You can't be a hundred percent conscious a hundred percent of the time. There's always like. I could throw something in the in the garbage bin instead of the recycling bin, not even know what I'm doing and unconsciously be hurting the environment, right? So there's a million of those examples. So as leadership, one of the first things you have to do is get over this fear of hypocrisy, right? Start doing it. Start being as conscious as you can and, and then tell everybody, like, I don't know. I'm not going to be 100% right all the time. So that gets back to the feedback, right? When somebody brings it to my attention that we were somehow unconscious in something that we did, well, now we can correct it. But I will tell you, that's the hardest cultural thing to achieve is a level of trust where people can speak truth to power and say, we're not being very conscious here, boss. We've got to fix this, right? So that, that is the journey that I think we're all on. And part of it is, you know, certainly that awareness, but I think Sarah said it best, right? It's trusted relationships, you know? And so the combination of those two things. So early on, it was about, hey, let's just do this. And now I'm getting to a place where I can even speak to it and say, hey, check this out. There's this group. Like there are companies like WebPD, like like we're talking about, you know, our folks at, at Goodman's, right? There's all of these great companies doing some great things and we're part of that culture. Now, now it's just all the benefit of that with not worrying about hypocrisy because we say it. We're going to do the best we can. Outstanding. Thanks yeah, for sharing that. You're clearly, you know, ESI is, is clearly within, you know, the ranks of the other companies that you mentioned. I mean, some of the things that just, you know, are still floating around in, in my head that seem to be the, the biggest indicators are, you know, you, you do your job interview and before you even finished your iced tea, when you were just talking that job, and you're just talking about consulting before you even finish your iced tea, you're like, oh, I'm going to work with them someday and uh, full time. And then uh, you talk about uh, how when you're, you're bringing people on board uh, to your company, you're like, we have this unfair advantage. You know, it's like a, you almost, you almost feel guilty because when you're going out and recruiting people, you have this unfair advantage because you're such a great place. You know, people can't uh, resist, <laughs> you know, coming to work for you if they're, you know, if they're lucky enough to get the offer. So uh, clearly you got the culture thing, you know, uh, on lock. And so, you know, I say congrats, but I guess really the right word is, you know, thanks you know, thanks for being one of those workplaces. But we are running out of time. And so I have to thank you. Of course, thank you for, you know, being a part of such a great organization, but also, you know, thank you for, uh, you know, coming onto the show. And thank you to everybody who has been listening so far uh, today and, and into the future. And of course, you can listen over and over and over again. And you probably should. This is definitely a good one. Uh, but we are the uh, uh, People in Profit Elevating Humanity Through Good Business uh, program. And as a reminder, Conscious Capitalism Arizona and the Conscious Capitalism Movement builds on the foundation of capitalism, voluntary exchange, entrepreneurship, competition, and free trade. Free trade. While most recognize that these are essential to a healthy economy, conscious capitalism also includes the critical elements of trust, compassion, and collaboration. Yeah, the movement challenges business leaders to rethink why their organizations exist and to acknowledge their company's roles in the inter interdependent global marketplace. Uh, I think all of the uh, information Andy shared with us today personified that really well on how ESI shows up at market uh, and how he as a leader um, demonstrates uh, those very things. And so uh, we hope that uh, if you find interest in this and are not yet part of the movement, you can uh, follow us on social media. We'll always share information and you can become a member and join in with this community of people who are supporting one another and sharing tools in this journey. You can find us at CC 
Arizona.org. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and and uh, the very last thing is just to uh, you know tell you about a couple of upcoming things. But I feel like I need to give Andy a chance to also you know say something one last time. Thank you, um, you know Andy for being a part of the show. We appreciate you being here. Yes, certainly. Uh, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. We we're just uh, happy to be a humble part of the of the community and hopefully be of service to uh, to to everybody that we come in touch with. Okay, and the very last thing is to let everybody know that we have a, a couple of um, uh, events. We Conscious Capitalism Arizona. Uh, Jeremy gave you the website. Go to the events page. You'll see that on September second, we have one of our conscious business chats. So it's an outlet for people to be able to, uh, you know, just talk about conscious capitalism, jump on a, a virtual call with uh, others who are interested in doing business just like you are. And then on uh, September 9th, we have our um, also another virtual event because just like everyone else, that's what we're doing these days. But we're going to do, we've got a bit of a relaunch, um, introduce our community to uh, how we're doing things these days, to our how we've moved to online and how we're figuring out how to best continue to serve our community throughout uh, all the social distancing. So go to the website, ccarizona.com, get to the events page, see what's coming up, and we will see you at a virtual event and uh, also at a future podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's it. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for listening to People in Profit, where we showcase the businesses that are elevating humanity through their work right here in Arizona. Learn more about us at ccarizona.org.